Hello everyone, it is That Williams Guy here for another episode, and we are recording this Wednesday, November the 2nd, promptly at 8 p.m., and our guest tonight making his triumphant return to the That Williams Guy show is Tom Givens. How are you doing, sir? I'm great. How are you tonight? I am doing all right. Now, I've got, before we get into the planned show, i got to put a little pressure on you and see if you're up to the challenge. By the time this show drops, we'll be at like 49,200 total downloads of the show. Are you going to be the episode that pushes us over 50,000? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or is it going to be the guy next week? No, no, it'll be (laughs) Even if I I have to log in several times. (laughs) Well, John Dobb is actually approaching 2,000 on his episode alone. Uh, You're in second place to John on total downloads on that so i think john may have uh come up with some bots you know he's a tech guy mm-hmm. he, he, he may have come up with something you know it's not who votes the council it's who counts the votes that matters that's right that's right uh, if you would just give a quick intro i'm sure most people are listening to the show know who you are okay uh full-time trainer uh started teaching Part-time in 1975, full-time since 1996. Did a little law enforcement work way back in the day in the 70s and 80s. Um, teach uh, pretty much all over the country, although I'm, I'm getting old, so I'm starting to cut back my long-term travel a good bit uh, starting next year, and I'm starting to wind that down over the next couple, three years. Um, do uh, some expert witness work on firearms, firearms training, various courts around the country, Written six published textbooks, four chapters in other people's textbooks, about 150 magazine articles. Um, I could go on, but you know, I've been at this a very long time. As you said, I think everybody that watches the show probably would be bored for me to go through it all again. So that's what we can do with that. All right. So you've been at this for more than a minute, what you're saying? Yeah, a couple of years. I'll have 50 years in this training. I'm thinking seriously about making a career out of it. Yeah. Well, you know, if you if you stick around a little bit longer, you know, you might figure out what you know. Yeah, it's possible. There you go. Well, or I could ask some of the young guys. They're always <laughs> willing to tell me. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I amused myself here recently by posting a picture of Jack Weaver. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if he were around today to post his own picture on the Internet, uh-huh. how people would tell him he was wrong about the Weaver stance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, not, he not only does it wrong, he's wrong about how it developed. Yeah, yeah. Which is funny because his his comment in a late in life interview was he learned all sorts of stuff about himself by reading it magazine articles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, several episodes ago, we had, had a group of guys on, and we were talking about when is it okay for a private entity to begin certifying instructors. And I want to clarify something to to the audience before you and I get started on this discussion. Rob Garrett was intentionally playing the foil mm. in that episode. He was trying to be sort not of the that devil. Dumb, not <laughs> that dumb in real life. He was trying to be the devil's advocate and, and put the questions out. And he really had a good uh, faith, uh, you know, good faith motive with his questions and the way he was asking them. Mm. Uh, I don't know if, if the audience necessarily understood Rob's career. At one time, he was the training guy for one of the largest law enforcement agencies in Georgia. Hmm. Uh, he was also, at one point in time, their internal affairs guy. And 
just to round out the triumvirate of unpopular positions within an agency, he was over accreditation. Mm-hmm. So if it was fun, somebody else got it. Rob, Rob got all the stuff that makes people mad. And so, you know, he sees everything through that prism. Yeah. Yeah, everything. Rob, Rob yeah. was there when Moses went through the academy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Wyatt Earp was his FTO, I think. Uh-huh. But, you know, I, I do want to point out to the audience, because there was a little bit of negative feedback that directed toward Rob. And Rob had a good faith effort, you know, motive behind the questions he was asking. And I think it's a legitimate question. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we as the industry need to be looking at. So let me throw the question to you, as I know you have your own certification program. When is it acceptable for a private entity to begin certifying instructors? Well, let's let's kind of go back a little bit. Um, I think uh, when we were talking to Rob, or you were talking to Rob about that, uh, he was more or less saying the NRA is the uh, certifying entity organization, whatever you want to call it, for law enforcement fire instructors in this country. And that kind of begs the question, well, how did that come about? Uh, they started their law enforcement uh, activities division, uh, LEAD, and I still play on words there for lead, uh, in 1960. Uh, well, you have to remember in 1960, there was nothing. It was a void. Gunsight uh, didn't come along until 1975, 15 years later, uh, as the first non-governmental uh, fixed facility school, uh, actually. So in 1960, there was nothing, absolute void. So the NRA said, we've come up with a program. We are the experts and got some state post committees and uh, police agencies to, to uh, accept that and just add, kind of de facto became the certifying power because nobody else, there was nobody else. There was nothing. And uh, so they kind of self-appointed themselves. So how's that any different from what people are doing today? If you take my program, for instance, uh, we set it up in 1997. I, I got uh, Tennessee to recognize it first because that's where school was at the time. I was trying to get uh, my own staff certified. And as they accepted it, and uh, since then we've had uh, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, probably a couple other places, uh, accept our training for law enforcement in-service training credit. And Oklahoma, South Carolina, Arkansas, Tennessee, Florida, all recognize uh, our training in lieu of the NRA certification to get a state license to sign up on people for carry permit training, but call different things in different states. But wherever you have to get mandatory training for a permit, there's some state licensing involved. And there's a half dozen states and Texas is pending. We're just waiting on uh, some of the DPS people to get back off the border, back to the academy. They're all out in the field right now. So uh, essentially, we did the same thing the NRA did. Uh, we got some police agencies and some states to recognize our program. So uh, the NRA is just not the only fish in the pond anymore. Uh, so when when the question is, well, how how can I how can I meaning me personally how can I certify other people as instructors? Well, it's the same way the NRA did. I, I develop a curriculum, get it okayed by various government entities, and there you are. Uh, yeah. so. Uh, the NRA is just not the only fish in the pond anymore because the pond has both evolved and grown a good bit since 1960. Uh, in, in 1960, uh, police fire training consisted primarily of uh, single action revolver firing, firing a double action revolver, thumb cocking at single action mode uh, on bullseye targets. And uh, 
there, there was not a single uh, private sector academy in the country at the time. So when the NRA set that up, um, they were starting with a blank slate. And that, that doesn't make them in perpetuity the only authority. It just means that they stepped up and created something where they, they saw a need for it. So we've done basically the same thing and then several other organizations done the same thing after us. So that, that when, when the question is, well, how can you set yourself up to certify other people uh, from a uh, lack of a better term, a legal standpoint, uh, I've got a, a dozen states, both state and federal courts around the country that uh, have accepted me as an expert witness. So that, that means court certified as an expert in its field, plus published author, plus all the training I've been through over, over the decades. And got these various states to sign off on it. So it's the exact same process the NRA went through. So when somebody says, How can I do that? Well, that's how I did the same thing they did, basically. Well, to, to be fair to Rob, I think his question was some sort of certifying body overseeing it, not necessarily the NRA. Mm-hmm. You know, because well, that's, like, that's really the only one there is. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, thinking back in the, of the history of the NRA, if memory serves, it was actually founded by union officers that saw how deplorable the Yankee boy shot compared to how the Southern boy shot. And they just, they established the NRA as a training ground to train marksmanship to private American citizens. And then it was ultimately, wasn't it a battle over their range that they set up in New York that prompted them to get into the political arena? I, you know, I don't know. I, I couldn't really comment on that. But you're you're right about the, the origins. The the idea was to have a um, organization nationwide that could raise the skill level of the public at large in case there was another large scale conflict where we needed a lot of men at arms. Suddenly, that uh, uh, the, the experience in the Civil War was that uh, a lot of people came in with no knowledge whatsoever of firearms and they didn't have enough time to actually teach me anything. And so the idea was to go back to the citizen soldiers of the revolutionary period where you had people who already had their own weapons and some skill with them when they're called up as a militia. When you call up a militia that don't own guns and don't have any skill with them, that's it's rather pointless. So the idea was to uh, bring up the, the level of ability of the population at large. The, the whole uh, NRA competition side of it grew out of the fact that the only way you get people interested in that sort of activity is to offer them some kind of a prize. So, you know, people, uh-huh. you know, as people will fight harder over a little plastic cup than they will to try to save their life. So they started rifle competition in the 1870s and then pistol competition in the late 1880s. So just as a way of getting people to participate in the program because it's no, you know, a private organization doesn't have any authority to compel people to do any of these things, no matter how good for them they might be. So the idea of competition was to lure people into the program. And that's exactly what they did in 1960 when they started the uh, law enforcement side of the house. That's also when they started police pistol competition the same year. And again, to try to give people some incentive to to actually train. So when they first started certifying police officers, uh, instructors, uh, there was no national standard for that. And uh, there was frankly very little power training going on in the country. And they, they saw the writing on the wall as we entered the 60s 
violent crime started going up and the uh, number of officers being killed in the field went up, uh, peaking about 1970. So they saw that there was going to be a need for uh, an active training program. And there was no other, nobody else to certify anybody. So they stepped in and did it. If I recall, two of the troopers that were involved in the Newhall incident were the best shots, in quotes, of their academy class. Yeah, I, I don't remember that, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. But, you know, their training consisted as what you described earlier, standing there shooting bullseyes, thumbcocking yeah. a revolver in a their, single action. Their qualification course at that time was still the national match bullseye course, where you understand the bullseye match. Right. And, you know, the Newhall incident is sort of what woke up law enforcement and yeah, as I'm often quoted to say on the show, there's 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States, so you can't speak of them as a single entity. Um, but, you know, that era is when law enforcement, the Imperial, we began looking at training and saying, all right, we got to start teaching how to actually use the gun mm-hmm. versus shooting it. But, you know, it was the private sector with Cooper and Gunsight that really led the way on that. And then the West Coast agencies were started going to Gunsight, getting that training and then going back mm-hmm. to their agencies. And if we hadn't had private sector driving that, uh, you know, development may have been delayed by decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The progress usually starts in the private sector and then slowly bleeds over into the public sector. So, yeah, if you, whether you're talking about a police department or the NRA, you're talking about multiple layers of management that have to sign off on anything. You know, the NRA law enforcement side of the house does, does a fairly good job, but they can't change anything for years because it has to go through multiple committees and be signed off up down the line. And just like in a government bureaucracy, whereas the private sector can be a lot more flexible, a lot more responsive when equipment changes, we can, with a stroke of a pen, I can change the lesson plan. I don't have to get it okay by somebody. And um, we can evolve as equipment evolves, as the threats evolve, as, as different uh, uh, new knowledge becomes available to us, we can evolve. Whereas in the public sector, it takes decades to change things, as you know. Yeah. So stuff starts in the private sector. You know, and speed loaders have existed for a very long time. The British had a, a fairly modern speed loader in the 1870s for their Webleys, but they were pretty much unknown in this country until the NRA started police pistol competition. And in the, the course of fire, a lot of, of your shooting time was eating up loading loose rounds out of pocket. And then they got slanted belt loops, which made it a little bit better, a little bit faster. But people discovered speed loaders and say, if I can spend less time reloading, I can spend more time shooting X's. So when all the national champions and PPC are using speed loaders and that starts bleeding over out into the field, uh, but it didn't start in the field and work its way over in competition. Started competition, works way into the field. Uh, autos started dominating practical pistol competition as early as the 1960s, but it took to the mid 1980s to finally get them accepted in law enforcement. But it, it was after two and a half decades of success in the private sector, and so that's just an adva- example of an advantage private sector schools have over the institutional schools is that we can just be more reflective, more responsive and more uh, more attuned to what's going on in the real world. Yeah. You know, I had the bully pulpit of my agency for 12 years. Mm-hmm. 
but even with that bully pulpit, I was still hampered by state restrict, you know, state mandated things as far as training goes. Well, in my private business, I, I like you just said, I can just change it with the stroke of a pen. I can decide. Well, from now on, I'm teaching this, and let's do it. And, and I even gave myself an out. I renamed all my courses last year. And I left the description of Pistol Craft 2 blank so it can always be my way or whatever I want it to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I said that flexibility, which you don't have in, in the public sector or the NRA. Right. And the other part of that is with the with the government sector, the state has established a standard. And Justin Dial addressed this uh, a couple of episodes ago. All right. The state has established a standard. Well, people tend to gravitate. Well, that's the measure of good. And, you know, I, I can't speak for every state, but I can speak for Georgia. And our standard, even 100 on it's really not that good. No, same way here. I, I can literally pass hours with my eyes closed. Yeah, I have passed the Georgia one doing everything as support hand only draws from a strong hand holster, including the reloads and beating the times. Yeah. And passed. I didn't max it, but I passed it. At uh, one point a few years ago, Higginbottom was trying to get the Kentucky state governing body to, to upgrade a bit, and he, he demonstrated a perfect score on their qualification with Captain Ball Revolver. Just, just show how ridiculous it was. Shot, shot it clean with a probably a coat needed. Yeah. Uh, of course, I, I don't believe I'd want to take on Jim Higginbottom if all he had was, even if all he had was the Captain Ball. Yeah. Let me do that. Yeah, I expect he could do some pretty good work with with old Colt Navy. Yeah, uh, remind me to tell you a story about that one out on the air. <laughs> now that's going to prompt all kind of emails and messages and texts. What was the story? Um, so let's speak into the development of Range Masters Instructor Development course. Okay. Well, yeah, I try not to sound overly critical, but we, we opened the mothership in Memphis in 1996. And Tennessee at the time had just passed a uh, carry permit statute statewide. Before that, carry permits were governed by county sheriffs. When county sheriffs issued them, they set requirements. They set whatever training requirement. Uh, In almost every case, you went to the county sheriff's department to get they called it training about four hours of classroom stuff. And then, and then you qualified with a pistol on a very, very, very easy course. But uh, that varied a great deal from county to county. Some, some counties were, were shell issues. Some counties were, if you were a donor to the sheriff's campaigns, you, you might get one. And other counties were, no, we're not going to have civilians carrying guns. So in uh, 96, the state decided to take it out of the sheriff's hands and put it under the Tennessee Department of Safety and make it a statewide program and have the training done by private entities. Well, I had been considering setting up a uh, school, a fixed facility school. And when I found out that was going to take effect in 96 as well, that's what what perfect timing. So we we opened our school in 96 specifically to hit that market. So over the next 18 years, we trained 45,000 people uh, through that permit process there in, in, in Memphis. And uh, so what that meant, unfortunately, was that we taught class 
either six days a week or seven days a week, every single week of the year to meet, meet that demand. Uh, we had um, five pistol courses, the first of which was the permit class, which is eight hours in length, about half and half range in, in the classroom. And then the next level built on the skills you learn now when you learn to start working from the holster and reloading under time and whatnot. And then the next class added to that, and then the next class added to that. So we had five altogether. So if you took all five of them, that's 40 hours and about 2,000 rounds. And people were actually pretty, pretty confident. And most people took one class, wait a couple months, take the next level, wait a couple months, take the next level. So over a period of six months to a year, people would typically go through all five levels and, and get a pretty fair degree of skill. And about, but we way above the, the norm uh, nationally, we, we had about 45% of students who went through the permanent class went through the whole process. They either got the permanent class, you never saw them again, or they took the permanent class and then took all the steps after that and became pretty confident. But again, that meant that we were teaching six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. And for the first year, that was me teaching six days a week or seven days a week, every week. I said, I got to have some help. And uh, so I started interviewing people for positions as instructors there at school and uh, brought in people from all the local law enforcement agencies that didn't work, brought in people from the local federal agencies that didn't work. So what I found was with all of these various law enforcement firearms instructors that came in to apply. First problem was they knew how to work whatever their agency's issued gun was, but didn't know how to work anything else or absolutely and totally unfamiliar with anything other than their issued gun. And frankly, weren't terribly interested in learning how to work anything else. Oh, none of them, and I mean none of them, had any formal training beyond the NRALE course and whatever their own agencies. Oh, Training division did no, nothing. None of them had ever been outside to a to, uh, outside school, a private sector school. So consequently, they didn't know anything. Oh, they know anything about teaching. And I just I had a devil of a time with this. I had uh, people who were actually firearms instructors for their agencies who I just I couldn't hire. They were just completely and totally incompetent. And uh, so then I started interviewing private sector instruct people who were already teaching in the area but didn't have their own range. And none of them had anything but the basic NRA civilian side uh, certification. Didn't know how to do anything. So I finally, I just came to the conclusion I was going to have any help. I was going to have to train it myself. And I was reaching a point where I was going to have to have some help. So I, I wrote the original program, sent it to the uh, Tennessee Department of Safety, and they uh, took a look at it. So, well, you know, this is far more in-depth, far more stringent, far more uh, demanding than the NRA course. So yeah, we'll, we'll sign off on you guys. So for many years, we were the only entity other than the NRA that could certify instructors in Tennessee uh, for uh, Tennessee license as a handgun carry permit instructor. So that's, what, that's how the program began. So for the first 15 years, we just did one instructor class a year and that was basically where I drew my staff from. And we wound up with, when we closed the place in 2014, we had, I think, 53 certified instructors on the staff, about eight of which were lead instructors, could actually teach a class without me or anybody around. And then the rest were what we call assistant instructors. And typically, we would have a lead instructor and two assistant instructors would run a class of uh, up to 20 students. 
And that allowed me to continue to have classes six, seven days a week, week after week after week without just completely burning me out. Uh, you know, I taught uh, a little over a thousand classes in the first few years before I got the staff built up to the point where uh, I could turn it over to other people and actually go home once in a while. And so once I got that staff up and running, then I started um, doing more and more classes on the road. I started out doing eight or nine a year on the road originally. And then when we closed the place in 2014, I started all my training being mobile and 30, 35 a year since then. So basically I, I started the program because I had to. Only with confident help training myself. <laughs> yeah, I remember I was in that last instructor class that was taught at the facility. <laughs> And one of the guys, I think it was Andy Anderson, was in that class. He's like, come here, look on the door and the sign you put up that the facility was closing. I'm like, we just got here. What are they doing closing this thing down? And, of course, then that freed you up to go on, on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, roughly how many graduates of the their initial three-day certification course are there? Mm-hmm. There's about 1,600 scattered throughout the U.S. now, about 60 in Europe and half a dozen in Latin America. Okay. Uh, we just hit about 1,600 more here in the, in the U.S. Right. And I think, uh, you know, one of the hallmarks of your program, not that you want to brag about a failure rate, but it, it, there is a failure rate. There is a failure rate. That's almost unique. Yeah. Uh, over the long run, we, we have about a 12.5% washout rate. And... Uh, yeah, it's one person in eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way I look at it, if, if everybody is passing, then yeah. your standards don't really mean much. If nobody's passing, then your standards must be unrealistic. Yeah. But if seven out of eight people pass and that one in eight doesn't make the cut, that seems to me like we're probably treading you know, pretty close to the line. It's it's you know, it's hard to say it's you know, and, and I, I don't want to say like you said a minute ago, I don't I don't want to set a twenty percent failure rate. I like right. everybody. To, uh, everybody takes part in the program to graduate from it, but that's an unrealistic expectation. People are people, right. and not everybody's going to perform to whatever standard you set for them. We set, as you know, uh, high standards, and we require uh, adherence to them because the standards that you don't force are meaningless, totally meaningless. So we, for the integrity of the program, we, you know, it's a ninety percent uh, pass score required on. Uh, Two different qualification courses and written tests, and every now and then somebody will score an 89 on one of them. They'll come to me after class all mad because they didn't get a certificate. So you know, I, I, I shot 89. You, I almost passed. You should give me the certificate. And my response is, well, I, I almost gave you a certificate. <laughs> yeah, but, but 89 is not that. Uh, I mean, yeah. if I, you know, if if you give them the one at 89, then the guy at 88 wants one, then the guy at 87 wants one. So 90 is 90, you either make it or you don't. So that's where the failure rate comes from. And, I, and I'll say this, almost everybody, and, and the exceptions will be extremely rare, almost everybody that fails falls into one or two pretty narrow little categories. Uh, the first category is they come in thinking that it's going to be easy with no background, no real skill, no real prior training. Uh, uh, the people who come in with only an NRA basic pistol instructor certification or only a USCCA basic pistol instructor certification 
where there's no real, I hate to say no standard, but but it's not real high. They've never been really held. Their feet haven't been held to the fire, really. Uh, and they, they, they have never shot competitively. They, they, don't, they don't really have any skill. It baffles me that people like that show up. You know, I, I've, I've never dived. Well, it would never occur to me going to a dive shop and say, hey, I'd like to be a dive instructor. Uh, it just wouldn't occur to me. You know, it, somebody that's never jumped out of a plane, you know, wouldn't walk into a parachute shop and say, hey, I'd like to be a parachute instructor. Right? But those, those are both activities in which if you screw up, somebody can die. Well, so is ours. Uh, you know, we, we kind of kind of remind ourselves of that every now and then. We're not playing. If you, you get you get bad advice from your golf coach, uh, the worst that'll happen is you suck at golf. When you get bad advice from your tennis coach, the worst that happens is you suck at tennis. You know, you get bad advice in this business, people can die or go to prison. And, you know, Claude would call that a negative outcome. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I view that as you know, pretty darn suboptimal. So, uh, you know, and you also got to remember we're, you're going to be dealing with strangers with real guns and live ammo. That is not an environment for learning on the job. Right. Uh, that's, that's not a good idea. So that's the first group that don't make it. They come in with just no skill, no real background, no, no footing. And then the other group come in thinking they already know everything. Mm-hmm. And they don't touch the manual, and then they fail a written test because they think they know it all, and they find out when they take the written test, oh, crap, there's a lot of stuff I didn't know. And... Uh, yeah, we warned them on the first morning. So we're giving you an almost 300-page manual for a reason. The answer to every question on the test is in the manual. You really need to forego partying for two nights and study the manual. And if you don't, on the third day, you're going to fail. So then when they go party, you know, I had two, two ladies take the class one time. And while the other relay was shooting their qualification courses, they had about an hour and a half to study, which I left their relay in the classroom to study. And I could see the classroom from the firing line. And they spent the entire hour and a half standing outside talking to each other instead of being in the study group with the rest of their squad in the, in the classroom. And then they both failed a written test and they both wrote me like two page single spaced nastygrams about having failed. I said, well, of course you failed. You didn't make any effort to pass. Oh, it's not up to me whether somebody passes or not. It's up to them. If they don't put it at work, it's, I'm not going to lose your sleep over it. So that's where that 12 and a half percent comes from. If you show up with some skill with a handgun, so we can teach you how to teach rather than have to teach you how to shoot. Mm-hmm. And you pay attention to what we do in class, and everybody does it passes. Yeah. But uh, if you show up saying, you know, well, this is the way I've always done it, and we tell you, well, you're not shooting up standard, you don't have to change that. No, this is the way I've always done it. Well, then, yeah, there's not much we can do for people like that. Yeah. Uh, I can't recall how many of the IDCs I've assisted with, but I concur with that. That those are the two groups that that failed. Yeah, just yeah, and I said almost without exception. Uh, all right, the initial certification course is three days. Yeah, and there's a next level that comes after that. They call that advanced instructor. Mm-hmm. And um, so basically, if the initial course were if we were doing it over five days, it would be Monday through Wednesday in advance, just Thursday and Friday. Yeah, we just pick up where we left off at the end of the first one. I, I wish I could get people for long enough at one time, but the reality mm-hmm. is that only occurs in the institutions where you have a captive audience. Yeah. So if you've got a 16-week academy, 
and four weeks of that's going to be firearms training. Then you've got them for however long you want them. They can do whatever you want to do with them, and they're they're a captive audience. Oh, but that's people who are on the company clock, being paid to be there, and they're doing their job when they're on the range. Most of our students, as you know, eighty uh, percent roughly, are they're out of their own pocket. They're on their own dime, their own time. So it's really hard for them to get a day or two of travel on both sides and five days of training. You know, we're talking about you know, a week and a half away from work, away from family, away from all the other obligations that all of us have nowadays. So that's really hard to do. So you know, you, you've been to the institutional schools. <laughs> you know as well as I do that uh, they will take those five days and, and pack three days worth of information into those five days. But spend a great deal of time just fiddling fucking around, twiddling their thumbs, wasting time, and that just drives me nuts. I yeah. hate that. So we do the exact opposite. We pack as much as we can into those three days. As you know, there's not any downtime. Uh, there's no waiting for something to happen. Uh, we we'll take a brief break and go right back and hit the next topic, whatever it may be, whether it's in the classroom or on the range. So we literally take five days and cram them into those three. But if I could get people for five in a row, the advanced class would be days four and five of it. So what we typically do, most people, I don't know the percentage, but I, I, you know, I easily say most, most people take the first class and then sometime between six months to a year later, take the second class. So we have to spend a little bit of time on the first day in the advanced class, kind of getting everybody back up to speed. So it's really oh, a little bit different than if I had here for five in a row, because we wouldn't have to do that. You would just go straight out of day three and day four. But it's a little bit of, little bit of uh, kind of getting people back up to speed, you might say, in that class. But it is, as you said, essentially it would be days four and five if we had you for a five-day class. It covers the things we love to be able to do in a three-day class, but we just can't do in three days. You know, there's there's a limit. Um, you know, there, there are 24 hours in the day, but if you think people can handle guns efficiently and learn for 24 hours, you on the wrong planet. And an eight-hour day where you're actually having to concentrate mentally and perform physically is more than a lot of people can do today. Yeah. Uh, you know, in just an eight-hour day, really. Because, you know, most people, especially in the private side of, of the life now, uh, you know, they work sitting down in an air-conditioned cubicle and when you get them out on the range, standing up for hours at a time, having to repeatedly present and holster the weapon and do other things with it, and the percussion of gunfire around them, and the mental concentration, learning new skills. Uh, at the end of the eight-hour day, they're they're toast. So uh, there's a real finite limit. I mean, a real red line limit to what we can do in three days. So we do as much as we can with that three days, and still have a, a uh, profitable learning experience for them and, and a safe environment to work in. So that's that's why we cut it up the way we do. And then the follow-on to that is a three-day master instructor class. That is if I had you for... I, ideally, I would like to have people for two five-day weeks. Mm-hmm. But that ain't going to happen in the private sector. That's just right. um, people would have to take off a couple days on both ends. It'll be a weekend in between for rest and, and study. So you're really talking about almost three weeks. That is simply not going to happen in the private sector. Yeah. So if it were possible, then you'd get all eight of these days in one 
when scratch plusing a little more. So the uh, master class is just an uh, acceptance, if you will, of that limitation there that we just simply have to work around. Uh, the, the first two cover the stuff that you just, by God, got to know. And then the, the master class, we get into stuff that you should know. As yes. You know, the first half of the first day of the master class is a lecture on the uh, evolution of firearms training. But what we think of as modern firearms training didn't start until about 1920. So from 1920 to 2020, it's a 100-year span that actually covers the evolution of uh, what we think of as modern firearms training. And I think instructors, you know, as someone who's being paid to teach other people this stuff, should have some idea of the history and development of uh, the discipline. Uh, it's not enough to say, do this because this is what the book says, do this because I'm the money. You should be able to explain, well, we used to do this, but we found out this works better than that. And if we had this, we could actually accomplish that. And if you don't know that historical background, I, I don't think you're fully developed as an instructor. And it's amazing to me how many even full-time, you know, quote, professional, unquote, just have absolutely no idea where we came from or how we got here. Um, hell, I've been here for half of it. <laughs> so, so I've seen half of it for the 10, but I've had an opportunity to, do, uh, to study the other half of it pretty well. Right. I, I, you probably can't see it. This is like computer. Yeah, okay. See that, see that wall over there? Right, you're seeing a third of that wall over there. That third is, all, that wall is all bookshelf. There are, and last time I counted, 350 books over there that deal with what we're here about uh, in some manner. Peripherally, they're, they're either historic books uh, from some of the old gunfighters or they're uh, early gunfighting texts from the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. I write it through modern stuff today. There's, um, in one section right there, there's at least 12 or 15 different instructors from that period that I talked about from 1920 to 2020. And that's a wealth of information there, but it, it baffles me that a lot of the instructors that I talk to not only don't have those books, I don't know who the names are. When I say yeah. someone, who has he got an Instagram handle? No, <laughs> got a YouTube channel. No, no he's been dead for eighty years. Huh? What could you possibly know? Well, he killed a hundred men. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what would Charles Askins know about gunfighting? <laughs> really. <laughs> no, don't take social advice from him. No, no, no. <laughs> if, if, if you want to be a psycho serial killer with a bad, then you can either way. <laughs> but but uh, the, the fact is, he knew an awful lot about fighting. Yeah. yeah. And, and, he, and he's just one. He's just one example. I mean, there were tons of them. In the 1920s and 30s, yeah. it was a different world sociopolitically. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those. Uh, peaks in violent crime that we, you know, violent crime in this country goes up and down like a wavelength diagram. And it was at a peak. Uh, you take uh, prohibition, the first narcotics laws, the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl, and then sudden uh, influx of automobiles into American culture. So Americans became mobile suddenly. Uh, uh, our culture lost its local roots. In 1920, the Typical American lived his entire life and died within a three-mile radius of the house he was born in. And that's no longer true after the automobile became common. So when you add all those five things together, we had an enormous amount of violent crime. And in the 20s or 30s, if you took a shot at a cop, we didn't have riots when he got shot. It was, well, should have expected that. Yeah. And uh, so there were a lot of professional gunmen in the 20s and 30s that wrote books about their experiences. But that 
kind of predates YouTube and Instagram and Facebook. So no, that information is not there, but it's there in books. If you just get off your ass and go find it. You know, that, that brings up, up a point too, that uh, I wrote an article and it's on my That Weems Guy webpage. Um, you know, I get these today in history things that I love to read, you know, what, what happened on this day and whatever. And one day I'm reading one of them and it describes some gangster era. I forget what the gangster's name was because he's not important, uh, who was killed after his bank robbery was full by a barber with a double-barreled shotgun that was part of a trained vigilante group. Well, that's what caught my attention. And so I started looking at what's this trained vigilante group? And I ended up finding an an academic-based article on uh, an organization in Indiana in the 30s that was basically an association of banks. And they set up a training network with competitions to encourage, you know, marksmanship training, basically set up a surveillance and response team for bank robberies. And they added like a call roster and say the first national bank of whatever little town got robbed. Somebody would get on the call roster and start calling. All right. They just got robbed. They just got robbed. People would go to their assigned intersections. Mm-hmm. and set up roadblocks and the banks were buying revolvers and pistols and tommy guns and giving them to this private citizen they were basically had this whole response net uh one of these groups even bought a aircraft with machine guns on it mm-hmm. they took it so seriously and that was the response to a bank robbery mm-hmm. during the depression era in indiana and eventually it faded out when radio networks became a thing you know, one of the first uh, photo slides in the historic uh, presentation in the master class mm-hmm. is from a bank robbery training drill in the 1930s where they have a plywood teller station set up with the, the counter and the wind, teller's window and the whole bit. And the bank manager and the teller are both holding revolvers, holding off these um, masked bandits with revolvers. Those are government issued model 1917 Smiths left over yeah. after World War I. The government gave out uh, postal carriers in rural areas carried them. Uh, that was the first issue gun for the border patrol. Uh, the government just handed them out left and right, and uh, they handed out quite a few of them to banks. Uh, this before the FDIC. The, the idea was so uh, you better hang on to that money because it's not insured. Yeah, the, the whole idea of let them have the money only came about much later after the uh, FDIC was formed. You know, to those that are listening to this and they're trying to decide whether they want to go down the range master certification road, I love that lecture so much that I tell people that the reason to take the IDC and the advanced courses so you can go to the historical. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a, and it's again, it's just amazing to me how many people just yeah. don't know that. There, there's about 40 individuals and eight or 10 really watershed incidents that we go over mm-hmm. that lecture and, and, Nine out of ten people that come through have never heard of thirty-eight of the forty uh, people, or, or six out of eight of the incidents. It's just amazing to me. Yeah. Or still part of nobody reads anymore. It's right. Not a thirty-second soundbite. Nobody's going to see it. Uh, you know, one one of my favorites from that, and I know the negative impact that he had on training, but was Delph A. Jelly Bryce mm-hmm. getting hired by the Oklahoma City Police Department at a pistol match. Because he whipped him. 
Yeah, because he beat him. Your son, you're hired, report to duty, and he shows up in Oklahoma City, and as he arrives in town, he kills several armed robbers. Yeah, he kills two the first night on the job. Yeah, puts him in his car and shows up at work the next day. What do I do with these two bodies? What do you mean, these two bodies? Well, I killed two robbers last night. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, that, like it was a different world than I can go yeah, that wouldn't fly these days. And then, and then <laughs> that might cause consternation today. <laughs> yeah, it might. Imagine the letter chief deputy. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't imagine that happening happening <laughs> now. Uh, and then, of course, he basically became a one man SWAT team for for the FBI later. Pretty and, much, Oklahoma City Division's one man SWAT team, and and. Uh, that uh, he was one of, you know, a dozen or so southwestern lawmen with a reputation as, as real mm-hmm. AI gunfighters that, uh, you know, who were brought in on the uh, the flying squad, kind of the first, uh, the first federal SWAT team, you might say. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where because this guy had a natural talent and could do things that were actually mm-hmm. superhuman. Mm-hmm. The assumption became, well, the exact way that he does it is how everybody should be doing it. Well, if you didn't have his superhuman vision, you couldn't pull off. And if you didn't spend hours a day practicing his techniques like he had done his entire life, it just didn't work. You know, I I, I knew Bill Jordan a little bit. And uh, Jordan would literally go home and make a thousand wax bullets. 38 special loads and shoot them that evening and next evening go home and load another thousand and shoot them next evening go home and load another thousand and shoot them. And that's, that's how he developed some of his exhibition shooting skills. But you're, that doesn't mean the skills that he shot in his exhibitions were what we teach people who carry a gun for a living because they're not going to go home and tell the wife and kids, I'm sorry, I can't be with you tonight. I got to go do my thousand rounds every night of the week. Uh, they're just not going to do that. So that's a mistake to think just because somebody with Bryce's vision or Jordan's obsession, uh, it makes that a viable training technique. Yeah. And of course he was also faced with the very real possibility that he was going to have to use those skills for real every day yeah. on the job. Yeah. And I, I think the stories in his book where he got in trouble for being involved in a shooting. And when he admitted that they sent somebody back to the office to get more ammunition. Yeah. That's that, a, that was kind of what caused the consternation. <laughs> if you could go back and bring more ammo, you could have just left. Yeah. Uh, that book is No Second Place Winner, if I remember the, the title correctly. Yeah. All right. um, you just recently taught a new iteration of the instructor uh, courses. Yeah. That's the pistol, pistol craft instructor. Yeah. yeah. Back uh, Oh, 15 years ago, we, we used to do a five-day-long class once a year. It was not an instructor program, though. It was, it was uh, before we started that. But it was an opportunity for people to get what you might call an immersion-level experience for five full days, including a, at least one night working after dark, uh, low-light techniques. But we only did it once a year, and uh, we quit doing that for the longest. But uh, I started that uh, new course this year because... As I said, it's really hard for people to get five days in a row for instructor training, but some people can pull it off. And if they can pull it off, that's that's a, a really good way to do it. You're, you've got a, an opportunity to keep your mind engaged 
and learning those skills for multiple days in a row and actually they start seeing it build up enough reps to actually start singing and doing it correctly. And we can cover more stuff. Uh, one we just did, of course, we, we had the low light segment where we stayed and shot right at dusk without flashlights and then after dark with flashlights, uh, which we just simply don't have time to do that in a three-day course. So um, with the five days, it eliminated that need to, to drop back and, and bring people back up speed that we have in the advanced class and, and allowed us to have a night fire session. And so we we started uh, started that back up this year, uh, but it's uh, as an instructor program, not not just as a user program, and and it worked really well. We had uh, uh, some really highly skilled people by the end of the week, uh, both both academically and physical skill wise, and it worked worked really well. So we've got uh, got one on the on the books for next year as well, and uh, that's for those rare people who actually do either have the ability or the commitment to take five days plus travel on both ends and do the program that way. You know, if I could get away with it, all the instructor classes would be five days. I just can't get away with it. And so people that attend that class, they're eligible to go directly to master. Yeah. Yeah. That, that class covers what we would in the three-day class and the advanced class, plus some additional stuff that we're able to do because we don't have that, that little catch up time. Uh, I have uh, Tiffany and the Keel came in and did some really important stuff on marketing for instructors, which is something most instructor programs that we do. do. And uh, how to maximize, how to train to maximize the use of assistant instructors so that you know, they're actually adding value instead of being on the range. I see a lot of, uh, you know, I've, for six or seven years, I was on Mass Head of SWAT magazine. My, my column every month was to go to a different school and watch them and write them up. And that's a dream job for a trainer. Got to go to 30 or 40 schools and steal, uh, audit how they do things and uh, work it into our programs. But one of the things I didn't see in any of them was any training on how to properly utilize an AI. And in a lot of them, they had AIs, but in many cases, they were as much in the way as they were helpful. So uh, I thought that was really a useful block of instruction for them on how to, how to develop AIs and, and actually utilize them in class and, and in the marketing information, which is, again, something most, most programs just don't cover. And then I had uh, John Hearn come in and do uh, one of his blocks on, on the mental side of this, which, you know, as you know, he spent the last 10, 15 years researching and developing program on that. So he, he has a four-hour lecture that is, I, I think, critically important for these newer instructors. So we were able to work those into the five-day program as well. So it was, it was really successful. I, I wish more people could or would do it that way, but right now it looks like I'm going to limit that to one a year because they just don't seem to be that many people who can, can do five days plus the travel. Yeah. Uh, and then there's, a, if you don't work for yourself, if you don't work for yourself, that's, you know, understand. Yeah. yeah. Now there is debuting next December a level beyond that and master, correct? Yeah, I didn't realize it until I got to file out looked at it the other day. We've now had about 165 people graduate from the master instructor course, which is about 10% of the total instructor population. And uh, every now and then I get a, a question from them, well, what's the next step? Which, well, there isn't one. You've gone all the way. But then I thought about it. I said, well, actually, that's not true. There's still a lot of it. I mean, the fact that I've told you everything you know doesn't mean I've told you everything I know. 
And so I thought about it a bit. And I said, well, hell, there, there is still stuff we haven't had a chance to cover. There's, there's skills I could push them harder on, there's drills I hadn't been exposed to. But in the classroom, there's stuff we just simply haven't had time to cover. So I came up with another three days. Uh, I posted the question, you know, and we have a Facebook group for our instructor uh, graduates. And I posted the question, well, who would actually be interested in that? And I, within a couple hours, I had 30 or 40 responses. So I said, well, I guess the demand's there. So I finished up the lesson plan and posted the class. And within less than 12 hours, it was sold out 14 months in advance. So I said, well, I guess there actually is a demand. So I uh, uh, put two of them scheduled for next year, uh, not next year, for 24. Because yeah. uh, uh, the first one is next year, 23, and then uh, two in 24. And uh, frankly, that may be it. It takes a while to build up more yeah. master instructor graduates because we only do one or two of those a year. And so we'd be looking at 2025, and hell, I might, I might need to be dead or retired by then. So uh, we'll, we'll play that by year. So right now, there's one in 23 and two in 24, and that's the only ones on the books. Like about, about, uh, about half my 2024 schedule is already done. Oh, there's one other instructor course, and that's the defensive shotgun instructor course. And for the audience, I'm going to relay a tale of range master lore that not many people are aware of. Uh, Tom and I were sitting in the lobby of a La Quinta hotel in Franklin, Tennessee. And uh, I looked across the table and said, Tom, I've got a way for you to make money. And Tom leaned back in his chair and said, most of the time when people say something like that, I don't believe them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got all of these people that have gone through your your handgun instructor courses. Uh, wonder if they would take a shotgun instructor course because there's really not a lot of that out there on the private sector side. And so we put it together and we tried it one time as a trial balloon, and it took off and is doing well. It has. Uh, we do one or two of those a year. That's another area where there's a god awful lot of misunderstanding, misinformation. Uh, bad technique, uh, bad information. So uh, I think you're going to see a little renaissance of shotgun that we're already seeing it actually. Uh, it's coming back around. Yeah, as you know, this entire business is a 15 year cycle. Yeah. Every 15 years, we go through the same crap again. We rediscover all this crap again. Mm -hmm. Same arguments again. Uh, you know, the optical sights on the end. Yeah, you know, when I shot my first pistol with an optical sight on it. Probably 1968. Okay. 1968. Well, that's what, uh, 54 years ago. I know there's a picture of one in the J. Henry Fitzgerald book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from 1930. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's, none of this crap's new. It just goes around and around and around. So yeah. anyway, the shotgun's making a comeback now, but there are only, I'd say, six or seven people in the country who actually teach defensive shotgun. And, you know, the, and I say defensive shotgun for a reason, the sporting application of the gun is absolutely nothing, not, not even related to the social application of the gun. So there's plenty of people out there teaching trap and skeet and sporting clays and that sort of thing, but that has absolutely nothing to do with the social use of the gun. So there's, there's very few people who actually teach that and, uh, there you go. We've done we've done what four or five of them over the last few years. I got I got a couple of them coming up over the next year. But uh, 
you know, the, uh, the main thing we do in that one is dispel all the bullshit people come to class with and, you know, get them straightened out. It, it's, it's, a, it's more an exercise in disambiguation than anything else. I want out uh, the guy here on the show, but I remember standing on a range in Wisconsin looking at a guy saying, one of the most venerable firearms instructors in the world sent you a written document with instructions on which buckshot to bring, and you brought something else. (laughs) (laughs) And you're shocked at what you're seeing on the target. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you know, I send out a multi-page memo with color photos to get them printed for that class. Yeah. And they show up with stuff that, you know, that doesn't look like anything like your picture. And you know, they say, well, it doesn't look anything like what I got listed here. Yeah. And they wonder why they don't do as well. Yeah. Here's a clue. If I send you a memo that says do this or that for class, do this or that. Right. It'll, it'll work out. Yeah. yeah. The, the document was written and provided for a reason. Yeah. 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 I, don't, I don't enjoy typing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> what I was in. When I was in high school in the 60s, men didn't take type. Real men didn't take type. Yeah. And if you had tried to convince me that I typed for a living 50 years later, I'd be damn mine. So I don't enjoy typing and it's hard on my hands. So if I type a two page memo, it's because reasons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had a conversation with the Range Master Certified Instructor today. And one of the questions he asked me says, so what is that reunion thing all about? Okay. Well, if you're, and, and you know this because you're a career mm-hmm. law enforcement officer, if you're the police, you got to take certified in-service training every year to keep your commission. If you're a doctor, you got to take continuing education credits every year to keep your medical license. If you're a lawyer, you got to take continuing education credits every year to keep your law license. Uh, professions require continuing education. So if you want to call yourself a professional firearms instructor, then you're saying you're a member of a profession. And if you're a member of a profession, then you have to have ongoing education. So the whole idea of the instructor conference, and so once a year, it's an opportunity to get in-service training for our certified instructors. Uh, we have people literally come from all over the country. We had guys, uh, you know, this year's was just a couple, a few weeks ago. And we had people from as far away as Montana, Idaho, California, New York State, everywhere in between. Uh, but the idea is to come get together for both classroom and range uh, training to uh, further their education. But it's also a, just a really good networking opportunity. I mean, if you if you live in New York State, you got a cousin in Nevada that needs some training, then you know who to contact, and not not a shot in the dark like it is in most places. But uh, primarily, as I said it's uh, it's aside from the social aspect of it, it's it's really uh, intended to be in service training for our state. You know, when you go through, say, our three-day class, and I give you your certificate at the end of that, you are, by definition, of handing you the certificate, you are certified. But that's not the end of the game. That's just, you have reached a milestone. Um, you know, like I said, I've, I've been seriously training since the early 70s, and I try really hard to take one or two classes from somebody outside the organization every year. And people ask me, well, what, you, you've been doing this longer than that guy's been alive. Where are you taking a class from? It's because he may know something I don't know, or he may say something in a way I haven't heard before. 
You know, the way I look at it, Ken Hackathorn said this years ago, he said, if I go to his class and I pick up one little nugget, then it was worth my time and money. And that's that's the way I look at it. I don't, I don't expect to learn anything earth-shattering if I go take somebody else's class. But I do expect to pick up a nugget or two. You know, when I, I took, uh, took Ernie Langdon's pistol class a couple of years ago, and Ernie pointed out something I wasn't aware of in my own technique, because you never know what you're doing. You, you know, a qualified coach could look at you and see things you don't know you're doing. And uh, I took Gabe White's class a couple of years ago, picked up something out of that that I immediately worked into our program. Um, I have never, ever been to a class where I learned something. Now, it may have been, for God's sake, don't do it that way. But it, that is learning. And so uh, if somebody's been doing it as long as I have, still sees continual training. Uh, and, and I think somebody who's been at it four or five years probably needs it too. And uh, so that's it's really a an opportunity for that. We all, you know, if you want to shoot a lot less, be a full-time trainer. Uh-huh. So we all need an opportunity to get some structured trigger time. And, and as I said, trigger time where somebody's watching you, that, that's the problem. And when you practice on your own, a couple of falls, uh, real pitfalls there. First, uh, Ty Green said, it's easy to be the best guy on the range if you're the only one there. Uh-huh. So there's really no way to push you. And then the other thing is, as I said, if you're committing an error, you'd never know it. I mean, how many times have you told somebody to take their fingers off the gun between the shots? No, I don't do that. Hey, you're coming all the way off the trigger with your trigger finger. No, no, I don't do that. Um, or whatever it may be. And and after you argue with them three or four times, we, we typically step back and video them and then show them, yeah, you are in fact doing that. That's just like we're doing it. But um, they don't ever know they're doing it. Well, we don't either. So if you uh, errors creep into your technique over time where nobody's watching you. So uh, I, I, I like to go take somebody else's best just so they tell me if I've developed some little bad habit like that and I can get it back out before it becomes too deeply ingrained. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really critically important. And and like I said, you know, the, we learn things. We, we've learned more in the last 10 years about how your brain works, how you learn physical skills, how you retain them, and how you can apply them under stress. We've learned more about that in the last 15 years than we've been to 5,000 years before that. So if you hadn't been to training in the last 15 years, how the hell would you know that? Uh, How would you pick that up? Uh, If you think about the primary guns that people show up for class today, Glocks, M&Ps, H&Ks, none of them existed prior to the mid-80s. Glocks, the oldest of the bunch, came to this country in 86, the rest far after that. So if you haven't been to a class since the early 80s, how the hell would you know anything about running other platforms? Yeah. So um, I think it's really critically important. So that, that the main uh, idea of that annual event is, is a, a continuing education slash in-service training slash networking. So we can get together with people like mine where not everybody thinks you're crazy, yeah. uh, you know, because of what we do. And no. Uh, I think it's important from that, that perspective. We'll be doing it again next August at uh, Ed Monk's really nice facility in uh, Arkansas. Got a really nice civic center we use for classroom and range. It's a really nice modern range about 10 minutes away from it. That's where we'll be next year. All right. Well, the members of the That Williams Guy face- show Facebook group have submitted some questions. They're going to ask some of them right now. Uh, one coming from Carson Baldry. Is what is the biggest mistake that you see from inspiring instructors and what gaps do you see in the training industry as a whole? 
He wants all this information for free, dude. <laughs> <laughs> He's a good guy. He's trained. He's trained with me. So. I just, just I, I think one mistake I see a lot of newbies make is try to teach beyond their own knowledge base. Um, it takes a while to have experience in, in different gun platforms, different techniques and whatnot. And I think I see a lot of people like, like for instance, I've run into a lot of people over the last 10 years who will take like our three-day instructor class and then immediately start teaching the same stuff. Yeah. Uh, you just learned that a month ago. How the hell can you be teaching that to somebody else? Uh, so, you know, the phrase stay in your lane kind of comes to mind. It, it, uh, what I think people are prepared for after that initial class is what we think of now as gateway instructors. Uh, people are taking these brand newbies. So, you know, we got an awful lot of gun um, buyers nowadays that grew up in an urban environment, uh-huh. never seen. I mean, hell, you get people in police academy now that have never seen a gun in person before they get there. And uh, that's uh, so the gateway or entry level instructors is very important. But a lot of people, for lack of a better term, for ego reasons, don't want to be thought of as an entry level or gateway instructor. They want to teach what I teach. Well, hell, I've been doing this for 50 years. Maybe you ought to be in this two or three years before we start doing that. Uh, you don't really have the breadth of experience that it takes to teach the uh, beyond the basic type techniques. Oh, in uh, the other part of the question, I think there's an enormous need for gateway instructors, uh, which a lot of people, as I said, they, they don't want to be thought of that way as a, I guess, Kind of like nobody wants to take a basic class. If you call it essentials, you might sell it. If you call it fundamentals, you might sell it. If you call it basic, well, hell, I don't need a basic class. Yeah. I'm way beyond that. Well, no, you're not. Mm-hmm. And the same way with gateway instructors, they don't want to be thought of as entry level instructors, but that's where the biggest demand is. Okay. And, and it's also, and this is one of the paradoxes in this business, it's also the most important for at least 90% people that take that gateway or entry-level class that's all training you're ever going to get yeah. you know most most programs have about a seven or eight percent return rate we we had a, a unique environment in memphis uh where you had, had the most violent metropolitan area in the country and the training fixed facility training center right in the middle of it where people could come in the evening and the train from six to ten on the weekend and so we uh we had kind of the perfect storm for training that, that high number of people and being able to retain 40-something percent of them. But in your typical training environment, people who take a permit or first-level class, that's it. You never see them again. So that is by far the most important training you're ever going to get because it's the only training you're ever going to get. So if you screw that up, you could have some real problems down the pike. But if you do that right, not only do you prepare them to go home and not be a bigger threat to their family than the bad guys. But you've also possibly sparked that little flame and then to seek some further training from somebody who is qualified to teach beyond that level. So uh, from, from both of those perspectives, I think, uh, well, we, you know, recently we started calling them gateway instructors. You know, Tiffany and Akil have a gateway instructor program now to try to prepare people for that specific task because we think it's so important. Uh, as I said, it's the only training the majority of the students are ever going to get. You know, the people who take a couple of days off on both sides in a three-day class or a five-day class, whichever, 
are such a tiny percentage of the gun owning public. It's it's you know yeah. we're talking about several places to the right of the decimal point. Yeah. You know, depending on depending on who you believe, there's somewhere between 100 million to 150 million yeah. gun owners in this country. Uh, you got maybe maybe 10,000 that actually actively train out of out of 150 million. That, that's not even you know a statistician would tell you that is not not a flashback. It's it's not yeah. uh, it's it's inconsequential. Yeah. So I think people kind of lose track of the notion, lose sight that that the gateway instructor drops the most important job in the whole training community. You know, I laugh with when people call it training industry, I laugh. It's it's yeah. a training community and it's a damn small community. But the uh, the gateway guys are actually the most important component of that. If they've been trained correctly, properly, then they can properly train that vast mass of people who aren't going to get any other training but what they give them. So to me, that's the most important link in the whole chain. Pretty certain that Carson was actually in the inaugural Gateway Instructor Program that Tiffany and I killed you just this yeah. past week. Yeah. Uh, and to demonstrate that I have been paying attention uh, to our recent conversations in the book that arrived in the mail yesterday, mm-hmm. uh, the importance of Gateway Instructors because of the whole notion of primacy. Absolutely. It's so much easier if they do decide to get some further training down the pike to build on a proper foundation than it is to try to undo crappy training and then replace that with proper training. It's so, you know, I would, any day of the week, I would rather work with people who have had no training than people who have had bad prior training. Uh-huh. And nine out of 10 that have had training have had what? <laughs> bad. Bad training. Yeah. Yeah. Stop jerking the trigger. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Brian Horton, who is another very dedicated uh, student, and of course I'm saying he's dedicated because he comes to classes with me, right, right. Uh, which that's the definition. Oh, he's very tip of the spear there. That's right. But I know he's trained with some, some other great folks as well. Uh, he asked, what flawed ideas and mistakes have you seen hold back good shooters who are trying to become great shooters? Uh, probably the biggest thing is it's kind of a Zen thing. It's, it's self-limitation. Oh, you can do a lot of things with a gun you don't think you can do if somebody shows you how to do it correctly and then you push yourself a little bit. Um, part of the problem is so much of the industry has low expectations. And if and, and you see this, if, if your state mandated qualification course is a friggin' sobriety test, as most are, and your guy shoots 100% of it, he is not going to work any harder than that because what did he just do? Perfection. 100% score means what? To your average person, it means perfection. Yeah. So why on earth would I work harder when I just shot a perfect score? Okay. So I think part of the problem that holds people back is, is a fairly low standard and then meeting that standard and saying, okay, that's good enough. Uh, good enough is, is not good enough, basically. Um, people tell me fairly frequently, you're typical marksmanship problem in the real world is it's a fairly large target fairly close it's not a marksmanship problem and that's true the difficulty is that that is then have to be executed under a great deal of stress where you're going to lose a good bit of your skill 
So if you are barely meeting that standard in a training environment, you're not going to meet that standard in a flight. Whereas if you're exceeding that standard greatly in a training environment and you drop 25% of your skill, you're still ahead of the curve. So I'm a, I'm a big proponent of pushing all the time. You know, every time I go to the range, I try to get, I don't try to meet a standard. I try to exceed it. Uh, and when, when I post the drill of the month every month, uh, the, the par time or par score for it is not what I can do. It's what I think somebody that's reasonably competent ought to be able to do. And my personal goal is whenever I shoot it first, when I come up on these drills, I go to the range and shoot it, is to be at least 50% ahead of whatever I think par ought to be. And if I can't do that, then I work till I can. And so I think that that's a, a real easy trap to fall into and say, okay, now I'm good enough. No, you're not. Nobody is. I've debriefed a lot of people after gunfights. I've never had one come back to me and say, you know, when the BB started coming back this way, I wish I hadn't trained so hard. I've never heard that. You can't be too good. You can be really good and probably will be okay, but I'd be be even better and and be able to say in my brain, we can handle this. If you can can look at that developing situation and say to yourself, uh, I think we can handle this, you probably can. It's when you look at this, oh, shit, this guy's going to kill me. And you know, and set yourself up for a real problem there. And we're not talking about false bravado. We're talking about real skill that your subconscious knows you have or don't have. I mean, you can't fool your subconscious. Your subconscious knows, did you put in the time? Did you burn the ammo? Did you put in the sweat? Did you actually take time out from things that you enjoy doing to build some of the skill? Or did you not? Mm-hmm. You can't fool that little guy in your head. And if he looks at what you have done and says, okay, we can do this really, really likely that you can. Training and practice builds skill. Skill builds confidence. Confidence prevents panic. And that's what allows you to use your skills in a real fight. So I think the the key is to get better and better and better so your brain can look at that guy in the parking lot and say, not say, that guy's going to kill me, but say, if that guy doesn't smart up, I might have to hurt him. That's a whole whole different outlook. And that comes from real skill, not, like I said, not, not fooling yourself. Real skill, not not a hundred percent score on a sobriety test, but some real skill. Um, yeah. I think I think that's a that's a common thing I see is people reach a point and say, "Okay, now I'm good enough." No, no, you're not. All right, I'm going to combine two questions, and so this combined question is sponsored by the EDC Belt Company and Brian mm-hmm. Eastridge, and I'm wearing my EDC hat uh, here uh, because. Uh, and Brian has actually asked one of one part of this question. And, you know, we've been beating this constant drum of the pistol mounted optics questions mm-hmm. uh, in here. Um, well, Brian wanted to ask what your opinion of uh, pistol mounted optics is. But then another person in the group, uh, Ryan St. Jean, asked about the use of white lights for private citizens, not cops, not security guards, or whatever. We had kind of a discussion going today in the show group on Facebook about those two topics. I'm just going to throw them all into one. All right. Well, let's just start with optics. Mm-hmm. First off, let me be crystal clear about this. I am not anti-optic. Okay. You want an optic on your gun, put an optic on your gun. I don't care. Yeah. Do I have one? No. I have played with them enough that I know how to teach it. I played with enough to satisfy myself whether I want one or not. After over 50 years, been teaching people almost 50 years, but I've been shooting over 50 years of 
trying to convince my little pea brain to look at the front sight. I am not now going to try to reprogram it to do something else when I'm 70 years old. Because uh, I'm just now getting to where I actually remember to look at the little bumper <laughs> every time. So I'm not going to change that. Uh, do I see advantages to Apple? Yes. Uh, for instance, uh, as I just said, I'm 70. So my vision is not what it was when I was 28. So uh, I shot the bullseye course uh, two days ago. And I shot 285 out of 300, which is a 95% score. But almost every single point I dropped was at 25 yards. Okay. Damn near clean to 25. Would a dot improve that? Probably. Probably shoot 295 if I had a dot. But it wouldn't improve the rest of the course. Okay. That's six rounds out of 50 at 25, which is 12% of the shots. In the real world, 12% of your shots don't occur at 25. 2% of your shots do. Okay. So I'm not willing to go through the heartache of trying to transition at this point in my life to something that only improves the least likely scenario. The other thing is, and I get crucified every time I say this, but I'm going to say it again anyway. The last time I saw a set of iron sights fail in a class was about three years ago in Texas. Guy who did not lock tight his block front sight nut, nut came off, front sight came off during an iteration. And we found it. One of the guys in class actually had some Loctite. We Loctite it back in place and everything was lovely. But had they been in a fight for the duration of that fight, he would not have had a front sight. But that was three years ago. I had never, and I mean that, I never have a class where optic doesn't fail, ever. Oh, there was a guy in, in the class we just finished up, uh, the five-day class we just finished up, who has a has an adequate amount of money, has a properly professionally set up pistol, a properly mounted red dot on it, and one of his uh, mounting screws sheared the head off, and so the gun immediately lost zero. Uh, during class, he had to switch to another gun. He's been around. He brings multiple guns to class. At the end of that course fire, he just put that one away. Got another one out. Finished up the class with another gun. But that, that was a that was a failure of his sights in the middle of an iteration, just like the one where the front sight came off. I had a class in Texas uh, back in the spring. Would have been May probably, where we had eleven people in class with optics, and four of them failed in the course of a three day class. That's a lot. Uh, one of them, the guy drew the gun. It had been working fine. Drew the gun. There's no red dot. It's turned on. It's battery's fresh. There's just no dot. Not just the LEDs quit working. Another one, every time the guy put it in the holster, it turned the thing off. So every time he drew it, it turned it back on. Another one came physically off the gun. It was probably improperly mounted. You know, the, the dot disciples will start screaming. That's an operator area. I'm sure it was. And then another one came loose and lost zero. And well, actually a fifth, the fifth one, battery went dead and had to be replaced, which you can't do in a fight. But that's, I see that every class, multiple failures, not, not the occasional failure, but multiple failures in every stinking class. I, I honestly don't think I've had a class in the last year. And they've all had optics in them. About half to 60 or 70% of people in class nowadays are showing up with optics. I've never had a class where at least one of you didn't fail in the course of the class. And, and like I said, it's been three years since I've set of irons fail. I've personally never had a set of irons fail because I like the crap out of mine and do other things to them. So that's an issue to me. 
the issue of on an open emitter site, the, the issue of liquid, whether it's rain or water from some other source or it's blood or whatever it may be, uh, winds up with multiple dots. A closed emitter kind of solves that, but a closed emitter is too damn big for a concealed gun the way I wear one, personally. So I consider that to be a problem. I, I, I mentioned that instead, a dot disciple immediately jumped up on me and said, nah, I carry my gun concealed, it's not gonna get rained on. No, it's not until you pull it out, dumbass. <laughs> I, I've had my gun out in the rain, for real. And it got rained on. For In fact, I had, back in the real offer days, I had a gun out in the rain, in such hard rain that when I got off the shift and went home, I had to detail strip it and dry the inside of it out and put it back together. So yeah, I've had a gun out in the rain. And had that had a red dot on it, it would have been absolutely friggin' useless. Oh, having to take it off to change batteries, any design that requires that, it's just friggin' stupid because now you gotta re zero it every time you replace the battery. Oh, so for me personally, no, I'm not gonna have a dot. Do I care if you have a dot? No, I do not. Can I teach you how to use it? Yes, I can. So, uh, I'm absolutely agnostic on, on that. If you want one, that's fine. It, it, to me, I'm not going to tell you what brand of gun you carry. I'm not going to tell you what brand of ammunition you carry. Those are, it's your ass. You make your choices based on the information I give you and other people give you. Make an informed choice and live with it. And I'm the same way about dots. You want a dot on your gun, put a freaking dot on your gun. But if you don't want a dot on your gun, you're not going to get killed in the streets. Um, you know, we had, uh, I'm trying to think, I don't keep track of this. I should. In the class we just finished up, uh, we had iron guys and dot guys right at the top of the class, just, just neck and neck. I think the top five or six guys at, at the end of the class, their aggregate scores were all within a percent and a half. You know, this guy's two, two, two tenths of a percent ahead of the next guy, who's two tenths of a percent ahead of the next guy. So I think the difference between the fifth place guy in class and the first place guy in class was maybe a point and a half out of 300 points. And that was a mixture of dots and irons. So, uh, can you still do good work with irons? Yeah. No. Does it not have certain advantages? Yeah. Does it not have certain disadvantages? Yeah. So you want one, fine, get one. If you don't want one, you're going to die. Wait, well, you are going to die eventually, but not from that. <laughs> yeah. uh, the other thing, lights. Now, that's yeah. another thing. The, the reality is the vast majority of people would hang a weapon mounted light on their pistol, do so to make it uh, a muzzle weight, just like the old muzzle weights you used to put on the 22 match pistol and shoot 50 meter bullseye. Oh, they never turn the damn thing on. I've actually seen IDPA shooters recently with solid brass flashlights that are not functional flashlights that they put on your desk cover. And they're nothing in the world of muzzle weights. Until just a couple of years ago, I was able to say that in my entire career, I have never found a single private citizen defensive shooting involving a weapon-mounted light. But I finally found one or a flashlight of any kind, but I finally found one. But it occurred on a pig farm in the middle of no friggin' where, where a guy goes out of his door at night. He always has a flashlight in his hand because he can't find his fucking car without it. So uh, he already had the flashlight in hand when the problem came up and was able to use it. The reason it never turns up otherwise is because the flashlight is a proactive instrument. You get it out to go look for something, whereas the pistol is a reactive instrument. You get it out because somebody else did something. Cops get a flashlight out to go in dark places and look for bad men. Private citizens should not be doing that. If Leon steps out from between the parked cars on the parking lot and points a pistol at you, you're not going to need to point a flashlight at him. Okay? And the whole idea of a weapon-mounted light, I'm going to point my gun at somebody and light him up to see if I need to point a gun at him. It's just patently stupid. 
when you point your gun at them, line them up and find out you don't need to point your gun at them. You just committed aggravated assault or assault with a deadly weapon, depending on what state you're in. Mm-hmm. So that's just stupid. So the bottom line is, uh, out of 70-something shootings, our students have been involved in, not one of them involved a flashlight. And not one of them in the debrief indicated any need for a flashlight whatsoever. Hell, I've had my gun, you have too, had my gun out at three in the morning on the 7 Eleven parking lot to see the sights better than you could at three in the afternoon on an overcast day because of all the artificial light. You know, the guy that lives on pig farm is, is an anomaly. The 99.99% of our students don't live on pig farms, they live in urban areas where it's not dark. You know, some of this just goes to ignorance, and, and ignorance is not a malicious term. Ignorance means you don't have the requisite information. Mm-hmm. Ignorance of violent crime. People think it happens in some kind of vacuum. The bad guy's not standing there in the dark. Either. Oh, there's, a, there's one. What they're doing is observing potential victims, which means it's got to be what? You can see. Yeah. You'll see. If you could see that that's somebody you don't know with a gun in his hand, you don't need a flashlight. So, um, I would much rather see the time and effort put into managing lights put into something that's a lot more likely to come into play. Now, it, it pains me to do this. John Hearn made a good point today. Yeah, that makes two this decade. Yeah, it hurts right here, right here in my, in my sternum. Uh, he pointed out, you know, he says, we, we see these arguments over what distance to zero an optic at. He says, we never see that. What distance do you zero your irons at? Because nobody zeroes their irons. Yes, <laughs> 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 I thought you might like that. Most, would most, be people, can't shoot, most people can't shoot irons well enough to tell if they're zero. Or not. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things we do in the class is they'll put up the V8s. And, and watch back at 25, and you see part of the reason I want to do that is to see exactly do you know where you're going to be wrong? Because a lot of people get back there and they're shocked that things hitting the foot high three inches to the left. And I didn't know that. Well, if you march back to 25 and shot something every now and then, you might know that. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, he's, he's got a point there. Yeah. You know, from typical defensive use, you know, I like the gun to hit right above the top of the front sight at 25 with irons. And so I suspect that. Uh, I'd want it to do about the same thing with dots. And they give you pretty much point blank range after about 75 yards. Yeah. You might be two inches above or two inches below anywhere from muzzle to 75 that way. Yeah. That pretty well covers what I need to do with a handgun. Yeah. Well, we have been going right at an hour and a half. Is yeah, any- I'm, I'm out of bourbon and that means you're out of time. <laughs> I saw the glass getting, getting, uh, uh, getting uh, there. Uh, anything you want to address that I didn't bring up? No, I think we covered everything. That's it. If we didn't cover it, they don't need to know it's going. <laughs> <laughs> Any parting shot for the audience? Get out there and train. You know, while you're training for diversity and inclusion, there are people out there training to kill your ass. Yeah. All right. Well, folks, uh, yeah. Well, first, Tom, thank you for coming on the show again tonight. Always. Uh, and uh, I, I have enjoyed it. I hope the audience does enjoy it as much as I have. And it's funny, after you were on the last one, you know, Tiffany sent me a message. It was just like you and Tom just sitting around talking. It's like, yeah, that's what we do. Yeah, <laughs> Usually about three times a week, just this time people get to listen to it. It'll be the first time that's happened. Yeah. We do it on camera. Uh, and uh, to the audience, we know that your most important asset is your time. 
thank you for choosing to spend it with us.